And uh, good morning and welcome. Thank you so much for being here. And uh, go ahead and get your Bibles out. Uh, Nehemiah 13 uh, is where we're going to be uh, this morning. And uh, as you're turning to Nehemiah chapter 13, as we uh, really conclude uh, our sermon series, uh, Out of the Wreckage, a study in the book of Nehemiah. As you're turning there, let me just give you the title of the message up front. Don't go back. Don't go back. Usually, usually you get to the end of the story and certainly in our uh, Disney-fied, if that's a word, uh, society, we love the happy endings. Nehemiah doesn't have such a happy ending because the nation of Israel, because the people of Israel were willing to compromise. They were willing to go back to the wreckage. So Nehemiah 13 doesn't chronicle the happy ending of, of, of God bringing them out of that. It chronicles the reality that they went right back into it. And so let's just begin our time this morning. Let me just start by asking you this question. Have you ever started something, resolved to do something, committed to something? I'm going to change. I'm going to be different. Right, the first week of January is probably where about 90% of this stuff shows up, Right? only to find yourself beginning to slip back into old habits, old patterns, old ways of thinking. Going back, going back to the very thing that you had fought so hard to be different from, to be changed by, to be distinct of. And see, that's where we find ourselves here in Nehemiah chapter 13. It's right where the people were at. Even in the covenant that we saw in chapter 10, we're going to be different. We're not going to be the people that we were and yet they've gone right back to their old ways. Gone right back to the very thing that they said that they weren't going to do. I don't know about you, but I couldn't help of, but think of that proverb in Proverbs 26. Where it says, As a dog returns to its vomit. Just let that one sit for a moment. I mean, how gross is that? As a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool returns to their folly. And that's exactly where we find ourselves this morning. It's exactly where the people of Israel were. And I believe, I believe for us both as individuals and for us corporately, it's where we find ourselves uh, today. And at a crossroads of, am I going to go back? Am I going to go back to where I've been? Or am I going to move forward to where God's taking us? And so before we do anything else, I think it would be wise of us to just humble ourselves before the Lord to pray and uh, to ask God to have his way with us this morning. Why don't you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we come before you today. We thank you for just your infinite wisdom, your infinite goodness, your care, uh, your love and um, providence in our lives. God, we thank you that you give us your spirit and that your spirit is actively at work within us. And even now, even now, where your spirit is, is, is moving and prompting our hearts. God, I pray in the next few moments that your spirit would have the freedom to speak into our lives, to engage us where we need to be engaged. Maybe we need to be confronted on something. Maybe we need to be encouraged in some way. Maybe there needs to be some exhortation. Maybe there needs to be some teaching or instruction. God, whatever it is that we need, would you do that? God, a way that only you can, where you can take one verse and apply it into so many different specific life situations. Would you do that here this morning in the lives of every person present in this room? But God, not only for us, I pray for Pastor Dennis Haroldson and for Providence Christian Center. God, I pray for that group of believers that you would have your hand upon Pastor Dennis as he speaks this morning, that his, his words would be your very words spoken to your church. So Jesus, now we, we ask you to do what only you can do. Would you come? Would you speak? Would you minister? Would you exhort? Would you confront? Would you deal with us in a way that's fitting and right? And God, would we respond to you as the one true king who rules and reigns over all things? Jesus, we love you and we thank you and pray this in your name. Amen. 
out of the wreckage. Don't go back. Really, the message this morning is meant to function both as a warning and an exhortation to us to not go back, to not return to the place that God has moved us out of, right? And really, God has done great things. He's moved in powerful ways. He's taken the people of Israel from a place of, of, of captivity and, and desolation and ruin, and they've rebuilt the wall, and they're moving forward. And then we come to chapter 13, right? And the decision for us this morning is to live in the new life that Christ has made available to us or to go back to go back to the wreckage that we'd been living in. So three things this morning, and really as I've tried to frame the outline and the sermon notes, just to frame them in a way that's applicable, but right out of the text. So notice this, first of all, don't go back. Okay, don't go back. Here's the first thing in verses 1 through 3. Don't go back to a neglect of God's Word. Don't go back to a neglect of God's Word. God help us, God help us that we would never neglect or minimize or or rationalize or attempt to justify God's Word in some way that He never intended for it to be. And so notice, notice what happens. Verse, or chapter 13, verse 1. On that day they read from the book of Moses. That's the Scriptures, loved ones. On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. See, what we've seen in the book of Nehemiah and what we've seen throughout the Scriptures is that the people of Israel got into a lot of trouble when they began to neglect the Scriptures, when they began to neglect God's Word. Things went really, really poorly for them when that began to happen. And so they open up the book. Notice what they find here. Second half of verse 1, And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. What's that all about? Well, um, Nehemiah begins to explain in verse 2, he's probably reading from Deuteronomy 23, uh, where we see this prohibition uh, put into place. But notice in verse 2, he gives us in summary form uh, the issue of why they should not be allowed in. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water as they were wandering through the wilderness. And they're like, nope, I'm not going to care for you. I'm not going to serve you. don't want anything to do with you. God's like, all right, that's going to cost you. But not only that, but then notice this, but they hired Balaam against them to curse them. Remember in Numbers 22 through 24 where they try to hire Balaam and they take him up to the mountain and he's like, okay, curse them, curse them. And he just keeps being like, oh, I have to bless them because that's what God's telling me to do. In fact, Nehemiah goes on and says, yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. Verse 3, as soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. So you don't go back to a neglect of God's word. Don't go back to a neglect of God's Word. Notice two things specifically here. Notice in verse 1 this. The way that we, we, we don't go back to a place of neglecting God's Word is, first of all, we have to read the Word. Right? We've we, we got to read the Scriptures. We've got to open it up. We've got to let it begin to speak into our lives. Right? They read the Word, and it's very clear based on verse 1 throughout the rest of this chapter that their immediate response when they, when, when they open up the Word was, was to respond to it. As soon as the Word was opened things began to change. Now, it's, it's difficult, it's quite difficult to obey instructions and directives when you don't know what those are. And see, part, part of the problem, part of the problem is some of us, we don't really come to the Scriptures. I mean, it's, not, it's not a part of our life. It's not something that we're invested in. It's not something that we do. So we, we just, we don't even come to the Scriptures. Some of us, some of us will come to the Scriptures. We'll, 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 we'll open it up during the course of the week. But the way in which we treat the Scriptures is flawed. See, for some of us, we treat the Scriptures more like a cold instruction manual or some to-do list or something that I have, some, some religious obligation or duty. Let me just kind of trudge through this. And it's stripped of the intent of God's heart as a father to speak into the lives of his children. Now, I've shared this with a number of you, but when I was growing up, we had a good family friend of ours that lived across the street. Her name was Jane. And uh, when, I, when I was probably in middle school, Jane got uh, breast cancer. And uh, so she, she, she fought the cancer and went into remission. A few years later, it had metastasized in her brain, and the doctors gave her a number of months to live. 
And so at that time, Jane had three young boys. I think the oldest at that time was probably eight, nine years old. The youngest was two or three. And so with a significant amount of her remaining time left on earth, she sat down and she began to write letters and pen letters to her three boys for them to open up at significant points in time in their life because she herself would not be physically present to speak into it. And so the day that they would graduate from high school or from college, the day that they would go on their first date, the day that they would get a job, the day that they got married, the day that they had a child of their own, that she wanted to speak into that. Because like any loving parent, you want to be able to speak into your child's life. Loved ones, that's what the scriptures are. It's God as a loving father longing to speak into our lives We have to read the Word, and we have to read it with that mindset and that understanding. So don't go back to a neglect of God's Word. Are we reading the Word? Are we making it a priority in our life? Are we allowing it to speak to us? But it's not simply that we just read it, right? How easy it would be to default into some religious duty or obligation if we simply opened it. But notice this in... Verse 2 and 3, right? At the end of verse 1, they see this prohibition that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. Verse 2 tells us why, because they had had treated the people of Israel so so poorly. So then in verse 3, it says, As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. It's not that we simply read the word, but that we also obey it. It's not that we simply just read it, but we also have to obey it. We have to obey the word. We have to do what God's word tells us to do. And here we see the people of Israel begin to do that. Right? They opened up the book. They saw that what was written there. And they begin to act on it. Now, can I just say that uh, for some people, that this had to be a pretty demanding command. That at that moment... How many families just blew up? How many relationships were severed? How incredibly difficult at that moment it must have been to go, okay, God, I know that you said this, but what about this? And this incredible tension, this, the consequences to obey in some cases were extreme and severe. And the great personal cost. And yet, they did what God's word commanded them to do. Can we, can we just be honest that, that there are some really, really difficult things in this book? There's some really hard things to live by. There's some really difficult things to adhere to. Am I willing to obey God's word is speaking into my life. And in that moment, that incredibly difficult moment where they begin to act on that. And let me just ask you, will you do what God's word commands you to do? Are you willing to do whatever it is that God's word is saying? Listen, loved one, do this. I'm calling you to this. I'm saying this is the way that I want you to live. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to let God's word have the ultimate authority in your life? And see, so often for so many of us, what we do is it's like, yeah, yeah, I'll I'll do that. In some areas, I want to be selective with it. Right? Far too many of us, we treat the scriptures kind of like we would a lunch or dinner buffet. Right? Oh, okay. Um, Let's see. What do we got on uh, for a spread? Ooh, yeah, I like forgiveness. Give me uh, some of that. Oh, steadfast love. Yeah, I'm into that. God's grace and mercy. I love that. Right? And we start piling it on. And, and, And then we come to the spiritual equivalent of Brussels sprouts and eggplant. Right? And have you ever noticed at a buffet, there's always something that no one ever eats. I don't know why it's out there, but there's right that thing that has never been touched. Right, we, we, we come to those things in the scriptures. Wait, I'm not autonomous. Wait, God calls me to a life of holiness and righteousness. Everything that I have really belongs to God. I don't want any of that. I right, think we can pick and choose. We think we can be selective. See, the reality is, Obedience, much like repentance, is not comfortable or convenient. 
In fact, oftentimes it can be quite difficult. But it's what God calls us to. Will you obey? Will you obey? Don't go back to a neglect of God's word. It's a difficult challenge to obey. Now, let me just say this here before we move on. Because this is really part of the crossroads. I can obey or I can reject. There's, re- there's, no, there's no neutral here. I'm going to do it or I'm not. And, and at that point, at that crossroad, at that intersection, the choice that you make at that point in time, the choice to embrace and obey continues to move you out of the wreckage the choice to reject, whether it's immediate or whether it's at some point in time down the line, just go ahead and start the clock because at some point in time you're going to find yourself back in the wreckage. There's no happy ending in the life of a man or a woman who chooses to reject what God's word calls them to. It ends up in wreckage and ruin. All right, will you obey? I love what James McDonald, the, the saying he's fond of saying is, Choose to sin, choose to suffer. All right? Choose to sin, choose to suffer. And one of the greatest ways that we can sin is to just to blatantly reject what God's Word has called us to. So don't go back, listen, loved ones, don't go back to a neglect of God's Word. Notice this secondly, look at verses 4 through 9. Uh, let me give you the principle up front. Uh, don't go back to an apathy of God's presence. Don't go back to an apathy of God's presence. Verse 4. Now before this, Eliashib, the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. Now let me just talk about this for a moment. So we got a couple issues. One, we've got a storeroom of tithes that's essentially empty, and we'll find out in a moment that it's empty because the people quit tithing. And then we've got an even bigger issue, or, or equally big issue, that Tobiah, remember Tobiah, the guy that we read about so much in the first half of the book, right? who ironically enough is an Ammonite, who was uh, excluded from the people of God, what we read in verses 1 through 3 back in Deuteronomy 23. Not, not, not only was as an Ammonite is he excluded, but he was an enemy of the people of Israel, and he was an enemy of building the wall. In fact, he was one of the staunchest opponents to this. And here he is living in the temple. Does anyone else see a conflict of interest here? Kind of an issue, right? Kind of a, a problem. And, and, and in fact, um, not, not, not only is he living in the temple, here's what you've got to understand about the temple at that point in time. The temple was the very place where God's presence was found. And so in the very place where God's presence is found, I'm going to allow one of his enemies to come and live in that. You've got to be kidding me, right? See, I think, I think one of the things that, because of the amazing gift of the Spirit, that, that it's pretty easy for us to come to a place where we can become apathetic to God's presence in our life. And so, so but before we start looking at the nation of Israel and be like, you guys are a bunch of fools and what a bunch of morons and why in the world would you ever allow that to happen? Let's not begin to move too far down the road at the reality that it's not so much of a stretch for you and I to arrive at the same place. See, because on one side, on one side, we see in the scriptures the notion of who in their right mind could ever become casual or apathetic towards God's presence, right? You think about Moses in the burning bush or you think about Moses when he said, God, show me your glory. And God's like, man, I'd kill you. It would destroy you if you saw that. So let me, let me hide you in this. Or Isaiah 6 in the throne room and he's like, I'm ruined, right? I, Isaiah thought he was going to die or the transfiguration with Peter, James, and John and their minds are just blown. And, and of course, Peter doesn't know what to say so he just says something really foolish. We've all been there. But see, in each of those instances, it's like, well, yeah, who in their right mind could become, uh, allow that to become casual? Well, Moses was with the same group of people that after God had worked so miraculously, they built a stupid little golden cow and said, here's the God who did this. Whoops. 
Isaiah, in fact, right after his throne room vision, right after that, uh, God God saying, who's going to go for us? Who are we going to send? And Isaiah says, I'll go send me. And God says, okay, here's what you got to know. They're not going to hear. They're not going to see. They're not going to believe. They're going to want nothing to do with you. Okay, well, for how long? Until it's totally laid waste. How's that for a commission? And then the transfiguration, right? Peter, James, and John lived in close proximity for three years with a dude named Judas who would ultimately betray Jesus unto death. So yeah, it happens. It's happened throughout the scriptures. It happens in your life. It happens in my life. It absolutely happens that we come to a place where we're apathetic about God's presence. Notice in verse 6, this is a key piece, verse 6, while this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. So Nehemiah is out of Jerusalem. He's back in Babylon when this horrible idea begins to unfold. But notice two things in terms of uh, don't go back to an apathy of God's presence. How, How do we avoid that? How do we make sure that that doesn't happen? Well, here's the first is that we revere what is sacred. Right? We revere what is sacred I mean, the, the, these few verses, this is such a crazy portion of Scripture that the, the notion that Tobiah himself would be living in the temple, that blows my mind. That the people would come to a place that it's like, yeah, it's a good idea. Or we're okay with it, or we're, we're comfortable with this. It's like, how does, how does this even happen? How do you come to the place where this happens? Well, it's that we become casual. We become apathetic. We become indifferent with that which is sacred. See, we've lost reverence for the one that's to be revered. And it's so scary, it's so scary that people could become so comfortable where they would allow their enemy and the enemy of their God to live in the temple. And I don't think that's lost today in the reality that far too often we're very comfortable allowing our enemy to live and to be comfortable in the church. All right? So how do we, how do we avoid this? How, how, do we, how do we stay away from, from, from allowing things that are sacred to become casual? What, what, what are the ways that this even shows up? Well, here's five. Here's five. This is far from exhaustive, but here are five ways that we're too casual with the sacred today. First of all, we're too casual, too apathetic with the Scriptures. We're too apathetic with the Scriptures, and I think this plays out a couple of ways. One, in how we treat it, right? How we treat it. We've already talked about kind of the buffet mentality, and, and is it really a priority in my life? Am I really opening it up or not? But not only in how I treat it, but I think we're far too casual with how we interpret it. And far too often, far too often, the primary means of interpretation is my feelings or my desires or what I want it to mean, not what God himself told us it means. And, and we're, we're in a lot of trouble. We're in a lot of trouble when, when my desires, my feelings, my wants becomes the foundation for all truth. Things are going to fall apart in a hurry. And we're far too casual with the scriptures. We're far too casual with the scriptures. Notice also this. I believe we're far too casual, far too apathetic with the church. We're too apathetic with the church. Now, some of you, some of you um, are very much active participants. Some of you serve at great lengths. And so I don't want to stand up here and say, well, no one ever does this because that's not true. In fact, I've been thoroughly impressed with the number of people who have served so faithfully in this church. But faith church is like any church in that we have some people who are active participants and we have some people that treat the church much like they treat most everything else in their life today. And they're consumers. They're consumers. Right? What can the church do for me? How are you going to entertain me? How are you going to please me? What are you going to give to me? As if the church exists for you when in reality you exist for the church because the church exists Jesus. See, far too many of us are too casual or too apathetic with the church, what the church means, what the church is intended for, what God has called the church to be. 
It's the body of Christ. Another metaphor for the church is the bride of Christ. Now, Jesus is the perfect husband. Um, and so, so I, I don't want to begin to say that I'm like him and I'm the perfect husband. I'm not even close. My wife could testify for probably weeks on end on how I'm not the perfect husband. But I'll just tell you this. If you were casual or apathetic in how you dealt with my wife, that would go very poorly for you. All right? Jesus is no different. He won't allow people to be casual or apathetic with his, with his bride. Right? And for far too many of us, we're too casual or apathetic with the church. Thirdly, we're too casual or too apathetic with our faith. What I mean by this is we treat it as one part of our life. It's one compartment. It's one piece. It's a part of the puzzle. Well, I've got my faith, and I've got my family, and I've got my career, and I've got my hobbies. And, and it's like, I don't know where you see that breakdown of faith in the Scriptures because it's, I've got my faith. It's not compartmental. It's comprehensive. It's the lens by which we view everything in our life. And yet for far too many of us, we're too casual, too apathetic with our faith. Certainly tied to that, but not the same thing. We're too casual with the Spirit within us. Can I, can I, just, can I just be honest and say that sometimes I am I'm shocked and appalled at what followers of Jesus will rationalize and justify when it comes to uh, television, when it comes to movies, when it comes to music, when it comes to what they read, what they will allow into their homes, what they will allow into their heads, and what they will allow into their hearts. Just telling you, sometimes it's, it's just nothing short of appalling to me that really? Like, you understand the Spirit of God lives in there. And yet we require Him to live in that kind of state. Far too casual with the reality that our home, or Christ's home, being in our hearts, and what we will go to great lengths to justify for the sake of entertainment, and of course it comes at the expense of honoring God. Too casual with the spirit that dwells within us. Finally, this, we're too casual with our relationship with God. I think two ways specifically that this plays out. One, we're too casual in how we view our relationship with God. Right? The, the idea that God's my amigo. Right? We're homies. He's my dude. He's my pal. Right? And, and God, God's some kind of peer or some buddy of mine that I'm going to fist bump and razz about a Lobos game. All right? God, God, God is not a peer. God is not an equal there's no one on par with him. Yes, he's a loving father that allows us to move close. Yes, he, 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 he's kind and gracious in allowing us to have relationship with him. No, he's not a peer. He is the sovereign, ruling, reigning God of the universe. He's the one who spoke everything you and I see into existence. We're not on the same level, loved ones. All right? And we've become far too casual in our relationship, in terms of how we view it. And then for some of us, for some of us, we're far too casual in how we treat that relationship. I could say a lot about this. I'll just pose a question so you wrestle between yourself and the Lord on this one. If someone treated you the way that you treated God, would there be a relationship there? If someone treated you the way that you treated God, would you have a relationship with that person? Now, some of you would go, you know what? I would. I would because you treat God in the proper way that he's meant to be treated. But some of you, some of you are kind of like, ooh, that was painful. Because you're taking advantage of that relationship. You've become too casual, too apathetic with what God calls us to. Don't go back to an apathy of God's presence. We revere what is sacred. Notice then this, look at verse 7. Right? Nehemiah comes back. After, actually, into verse 6. After some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem, and I then discovered the evil. I discovered the evil. You want to circle that word evil in your scriptures. I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. 
So we revere what is sacred. And, and, and secondly, in terms of not becoming apathetic about God's presence, we confront sin. We confront sin. Notice in verse 7, part of the confrontation of sin is, is this word evil. And it's that we call sin, sin. We call sin, sin. We call it what it really is. Uh, Nehemiah says, I discovered the evil. Now, here's what you have to know. This Hebrew word evil is used a few other places in the scriptures. It's the same word that's used in Genesis 6 uh, to describe the wickedness of the people right before God chose to flood the entire earth. It's the same word that's used in Genesis 19, speaking of Sodom and Gomorrah, right before God destroyed the city. It's the same word that's used in Exodus 32 as God was on the verge of destroying the nation of Israel because of the golden calf and choosing to worship it. See, Nehemiah was willing to confront sin. He called it what it was. And I fear for us that too often, whether we're afraid, whether it's because we're too casual, whether we're indifferent, whatever it may be, but I fear that too often we're afraid to call sin what it really is. We're afraid to call sin, sin. God, help us. God, help us. That we would have the courage in, in our own lives to call sin, sin. To call it what it really is. To not rationalize it. To not justify it. To not try to explain it away. Be like, you know, this is sin. It needs to be repented of. He called sin, sin. And then this, I love this. Starting in verse 8, it almost is like, it's like a screw pops loose in Nehemiah. <laughs> Verse 8, and I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Like, would, wouldn't you have loved to be there when he found out what was going on? Right, whether it's a casual conversation, or, hey, why don't you go grab this out of the storeroom? Oh, well, uh, there's nothing in the storeroom. What do you mean there's nothing in the storeroom? Well, well, that's Tobiah's apartment. What? Oh, yeah, Eliashib thought it would be a good idea to allow him to move in. He was kind of having a hard place finding an apartment, so we just figured we could, okay, give me a key or I'm kicking in the door, right? And then he doesn't even wait for anyone, and he just starts throwing stuff out. And then in verse 9, look at what he says. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers. He's like, you go get some people. You cleanse this. We're going to get this right. It's the, it's the original temple cleansing, right? That's what this is. It's a prefiguring of Jesus and, and, and this zealous passion for God and his word and his truth and his house. He's like, I'm not going to stand for this. He called sin, sin, and then he dealt with it. He wasn't just going to stand idly by, oh, well, that's probably not a good idea. Uh, maybe we should think about an alternative. No, no, it's like, get him out. In fact, no, I'm going to get him out. See, because... God won't be where unrighteousness is found. God won't be, listen very carefully, loved ones, God won't be where unrighteousness is found. Where evil is, God isn't. Now, he will certainly rescue you and I from that, and he has, but he will not go with us into it. Okay? God won't be found where evil is found. God won't be found where sin is found. God won't be found where unrighteousness is found. He will rescue. He will redeem. He will move us out of that, but he's not going with us into that. And part of our apathy towards God's presence is the comfort we have with sin, that we've become comfortable, that we've become complacent, that we're okay with sin in our lives, with sin in our house. Don't go back. Don't go back to an apathy of God's presence. Here's the final thing. Final thing, verses 10 through 29. We see this. Don't go back to disobedience to his commands. Don't go back to disobedience to his commands. Now, in verses 10 through 29, we see three items mentioned. Uh, he's going to talk about the tithe. He's going to talk about the Sabbath. And he's going to talk about marriage. Now, what you've got to understand is back in chapter 10, when the people made a covenant, when they made a covenant with God, when they had opened up the scriptures again and they had seen the law and they had seen what God had called them to do and told them to do, those three items were pressing upon them, so pressing that in this new covenant that they made in chapter 10, they promised God that they were going to be faithful in three things. You want to guess what those three things were? Right? It was the tithe and the Sabbath and marriage. And yet here we are just a few chapters later and Nehemiah is dealing with those three items. 
Now, before we get to them, let me just say a couple of things about them. First of all, I just wrote this down. The issue of a command and our willingness to obey it or not is related to how we perceive the giver of the command and our willingness to respond to him. Let me just read that again. Get this. The issue of a command and our willingness to obey it or not is related to how we perceive the giver of the command and our willingness to respond to him. See, the command isn't so much the issue. It's who gives the command that drives the issue. If I have a low view of God, I'm going to have a low view of what he calls me to. If I have a high view of God, I'm going to have a high view of what he calls me to. And that's the fundamental issue. That's the heart issue that we have to answer. So before we get to these things... What's your view of God? How do you see the giver of the command? Because that's going to drive how you see these items. Now, these these three things, it would be really easy to kind of hang out in the Old Testament realm of these things and and kind of leave it on the intellectual level. But I think the truth is, (coughs) I think the truth is that these three items really get it at three of the primary heart attitudes that pretty much all of us wrestle with in our lives today. So we're going to deal with them applicably in that regard. So don't go back to disobedience to his command. Here's the first one in verses 10 through 14. It's the tithe. And really the hard attitude of the tithe boils down to this. It's my money. It's my money, God. I do what I want with it. Look at what the text says, verse 10. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field, right? No tithes coming in, so the people abandoned the work of the temple. Verse 11, right? Here's, here, you want to know how you deal with sin? Here's how you deal with sin. So I confronted the officials. Right? We already saw that. He's just doing the same thing that he did uh, back in verses 7, 8, and 9. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Right? He put them into work before any of the tithes had come back in. And I love that faith. Then verse 12, Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. It means to describe some of the people that were responsible for this. And then this little nugget at the end of verse 13. The reason those people were put, o- put over the, the storehouses, for they were considered reliable. For they were considered reliable. See, it's not about the skill set. It's about the integrity set. It's not about the competency, it's about the conviction and the character. That's why those individuals were over this. Not because they had all the talent, but because they had a faithfulness and a reliability to them. Don't go back to disobedience to his command. It's, it's my money. Right? The hard attitude that says it's my money. The people had come to a place where they viewed their money and their possessions as their own and not as God's. So let me just ask you, in your life, as you begin to think about your bank account, as you begin to think about your cars and your home and your various uh, investments and assets and things of that nature, just think about those for a moment. Now let me ask you this question. Whose are they? Whose are they? Are they yours? Or are they God's? Who do they belong to? Some of you, some of you right now are going, well, no, they're gods. I, I got that. I understand that. Some of you are like, no, okay, they're, they're, you're, you're right. I've been living like they're mine, but yeah, they're gods. And some of you, some of you might be sitting here, and right now what's going on inside of you is, 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 is anger is beginning to well up inside of you. How dare you? How dare you talk about my money and what belongs to me and, and whose it is and whose it isn't? See, because in that heart though you would maybe never verbalize it, what you've just identified is who your real God is, who your real source of identity is, who your real source of hope is. So yeah, I get where the anger's welling up because I'm trampling all over your God right now. And the reality that money is not God and what money brings is not God. Now Jesus, Jesus himself said this in Matthew Uh, 25, in in the parable of the stewards, the parable of the talents, he said this. He said, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. Did you catch that? Did you catch that? The owner came to the stewards and said, Here's my stuff. Here's my property. Here's my belongings. You're going to care for it for a season. And then you're going to be accountable for it. 
So because really the question that it comes down to is, is am I an owner or am I a steward? Am I an owner or am I a steward? An owner, an owner owns it. It's my possession. It's my thing. And that's why I fight when I feel like it's being taken from me. A steward recognizes it's not mine. I've just been entrusted to it with a, for a season, for a period of time. And ultimately, I'm going to answer for it. I've got to give it back to its rightful owner. See, the only thing that you and I own, loved ones, is our sin. Everything else has been entrusted to us. Your, your, your assets, your possessions, you're a steward of that. If you're married, your spouse, that, that, that's not yours. That, that's God's child. You're a steward of that. If you have children, they're not your children. This might be a relief for some of you parents, right? Okay. They're not yours. They're his. But you are a steward who will give an account. See, this stewardship principle runs throughout the scriptures. The hard attitude of, it's my money, leads to the place where the tithing stops. Yet throughout the scriptures, right, we see this, 1 Corinthians 4, Paul asked the Corinthians, what do you have that you did not receive? What do, you, what do you have that wasn't ultimately given to you? David in 1 Chronicles 29 says, for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours, O Lord. He got it. Do we? My money, my stuff, my possessions, my things, right? We say that and God's like, no, 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 loved one, no, no, no. It's never, ever, ever been yours. It's always, always, always been mine. I've just entrusted it to you for a season. And I'm going to ask for it back. And you're going to account for it. This hard attitude of it's my money. So challenging, so challenging for some of us. Notice then this, secondly, Starting in verse 15, uh, he moves on to the issue of the Sabbath. Moves on to the issue of the Sabbath. And really the heart attitude here, the heart issue is, it's my time. It's my time. I do what I want with it. Verse 15, in those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grape, figs, and all kinds of loads, right? And all these issues jump down to verse 17. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah. There it is again. There's sin. I'm going to confront it. I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? And now you're bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath? He's like, have you guys not forgot? Have you lost your mind? We just came out of all these issues and all this wreckage and out of the captivity and all of the struggle. And you want to go right back to this? You must be crazy, right? As a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool returns to his folly. It's my time. It's my time. And, and this, the issue of the Sabbath, like all sin and compromise, uh, starts as a slow trickle and moves into a full-fledged torrent of activity. So Nehemiah's response, verse 19, as soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath... I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be open until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. He's like, I don't trust you guys. I'm going to leave some guys out there. So check this out, verse 20. Then the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. Can you see them rolling in Saturday night? And they're like, wait, 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 wait. Why are the gates closed? Oh, uh, yeah, it's shut down for business. Are you going to open up tomorrow? No. Nehemiah kind of had a screw pop loose, man. He's kind of on a rampage. Why don't you come back next week, right? And they come back a week or two. And Nehemiah's like, hey, you guys aren't getting the message. Look at verse 21. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. Okay, that's a different meaning of laying on of hands than we're used to seeing in the scriptures, right? Okay, but he's like, come back again. It's going to go very, very poorly for you. And then check this out. From that time on, they did not come back on the Sabbath. Right, problem solved. Problem solved, right? It's, it's my time. It's my time. And the people came to the place where they viewed their time as their own and not as belonging to God. Here's what you got to know. 1 Corinthians 6 tells us, listen very carefully, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. 
you're not your own. You're not autonomous. You're not your own. You're not the ruling, reigning anything of your life. God is. God is. And so, so it's not your time. It's his time. And so when it comes to this issue, and of course, time is such a precious commodity in our society, isn't it? Isn't that one of the things we value the most? But when it comes to this issue, do you recognize that you've been bought with a price? Or do you see this as some place of autonomy in your life? See, the people of Israel went back to that place. They went back to that wreckage. Don't make that same mistake. Don't go back to disobedience to his command. The tithe, the hard attitude of it's my money. The Sabbath, the hard attitude of it's my time. And here's really the, 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 the big one that drives it all. Starting in verse 23, this issue of marriage. And it's really the hard attitude that it's my life. It's my life. And I'm going to live it my way. I'm going to live it the way that I want to live it. I want to do the things that I want to do in this Notice what it says, verse 23. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but the language of each people. And so Nehemiah is looking around, and he's like, man, our people have all walked away. They don't even know their own language. They can't even communicate with each other. And then verse 25. I think I found my new life verse. Here it is. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Like, how do you preach that? Right? Like, what do you do with that? Uh, Okay, here's four ways to pulverize sinners. I don't really know how to preach that outside of the fact that here's a man that is consumed with a passion for God. And he refuses to let anyone or anything stand in the way of God's glory being compromised on any level. Jesus himself said in John chapter 2 that zeal for my father's house will consume me. And of course, he's quoting David in Psalm 69. Now, we probably wouldn't um, uh, condone or accept Nehemiah's behavior and how he handled it. Let's not miss the zeal and the passion. Let me just ask you right now, what are you zealous about? What are you passionate about? What is it that would consume you? What is it that would bring you to the place of beating someone down righteously if you can do that because you're so consumed by it? And see, the the issue goes on. Verse 26, Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women among the many nations? There was no king like him. And he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel, right? Solomon, the guy who had it all, says this, Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. See, even the guy that had it all, this was a stumbling block. Even the guy who had it all couldn't master this particular issue, which is probably why from the very beginning God said, don't. Verse 27 Here's Nehemiah's response. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously or faithlessly against our God by marrying foreign women? And it comes down to this issue. It comes down to this point, this principle of, are are, are we going to stand for this? Are we going to allow for this? You're going to sin so violently against God and his commands and what he's called us to. He's like, I'm not going to stand for that. And this heart issue of, it's my life. See, I think it comes down to one simple question. I think it comes down to the question of, why do I exist? Why am I here? What's my reason for existence? Why did God create humanity? Because if God created you and I, with you and I as the ultimate objective, as you and I as the ultimate aim, then certainly pleasing ourselves, loving ourselves, would be the chief end of what we're after. But God didn't create you and I with you and I as the end result or the epicenter of all things. God created you and I for Him. He created you and I for His glory. He created you and I for His good pleasure. And the mercies of God is that he allows us, even in our 
incredible sinfulness and rejection of his plan to come back into relationship and to be a part of building his kingdom. So just ask yourself, why do I exist? Why am I here? What is my ultimate purpose in life? Because if it's me, it's going to be about my life. If it's about God, it's not going to be about my life. Just this morning, I was chuckling at the fact that even the earth, right, even the planet that we live on, isn't at the center of our solar system. Right? Every facet of the creative order points to the fact that you and I are not the ultimate authority, but that God is. Don't go back to disobedience to his commands. What I want to do now, I want to, I want to transition us um, and, and, and come to the communion table, but I want to be really, really directed and really specific uh, with our time here this morning. And so let, let me just briefly, let me just read from uh, 1 Corinthians 11. I think this is always a great exhortation for us uh, as we come to the Lord's uh, table. Paul says this about communion. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. See, here it is. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And so in these next few moments where we would really examine ourselves, where we would look at ourselves and really consider, am I going back to the very wreckage that God has freed me from or by his mercy and his grace and by his forbearance, is God moving me away from that? And so as we, as we come, in a moment I'll ask you to come forward. We've got three tables up front. We've got two in the back, so you're free to go to any of them. We do ask that uh, in the center aisles that you try to do the one-way traffic thing as best as possible. Come forward on the outside. You head backwards. At Faith Church, we practice what we refer to as open communion. So you don't have to be a member, but we do ask that you would be a believer or a follower of Jesus Christ. And so if you can't look to a point in time in your life where you've forsaken all, recognizing that Jesus' sin and his sin alone has paid the penalty for your death, and this isn't for you, or, 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 give you a better option, you repent right now just between yourself and the Lord, quietly in your heart, where you would say, okay, God, it's time. It's time. I'm done fighting you. I'm done running from you. I'm done rejecting you. And because of your son, Jesus, I'm going to willingly live for you. So as we come to the communion table, what I really want, certainly you need to wrestle with examining yourself. But this should be a significant time of making the resolve, the resolve I'm not going back. Jesus, I'm not going back. I'm not going back to the wreckage. I'm not going back to the old life. I'm not going back to the way that things were. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. I'm not going back to the old. I'm moving forward in the new. So with that, why don't you come, grab the elements, hold them. We'll partake together at the end, um, and then we'll wrap up. But go ahead and come uh, to the communion table.